very end of First Kings, discussion of uh, Jehoshaphat, king of the, the south, Judah, and Ahaziah, the king of the north, northern Israel, the northern ten tribes, and uh, some of the things it teaches us about Jesus and about ourselves today. First Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 41. This is God's word, eternally true. Jehoshaphat, son of Asa, became king of Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 25 years. His mother's name was Azubah, daughter of Shilhi. In everything he walked in the ways of his father Asa and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed and the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jehoshaphat was also at peace with the king of Israel. As for the other events of Jehoshaphat's reign, the things he achieved and his military exploits, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? He rid the land of the rest of the male shrine prostitutes who remained there even after the reign of his father Asa. There was then no king in Edom. A deputy ruled. Now, Jehoshaphat built a fleet of trading ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never set sail. They were wrecked at Ezion Geber. At that time, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, let my, men set sa let my men sail with your men. But Jehoshaphat refused. Then Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David, his father, and Jehoram, his son, succeeded him. Ahaziah, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he walked in the ways of his father and mother and in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshipped Baal and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger, just as his father had done. Here ends our reading. Uh, there's a response of thankfulness that's printed for us in our bulletins. The word of the Lord. Thanks, be to God. Thanks indeed. Let's pray. Uh, Christians often uh, shortchange what the gospel is. Uh, the gospel is more than Christians assume it to be. The gospel means the good news. Um, and often the uh, Christians just assume that the good news ends with Jesus forgives your sins if you believe in him. Now, that's true, and that's very good news. And if that's all the gospel were, we would have no complaints. Uh, we deserve nothing from God. Yet that's a very shortened, short-changed uh, view of uh, what the gospel is. And we'll uh, look at all that there is to it, and we'll see that in this passage as we go through it. But first, to set it up, a couple of things um, to look at um, and just... Uh, review to fill in some blanks uh, shortly for you here or quickly for you here from last week. Um, things that we talked about, and if you weren't here last week, you can um, watch or hear that online or wherever you get your podcasts, <laughs> as they say. Uh, but one of the things we saw from this passage last week was your introduction there. Every person has a God or gods. Everybody does, even an atheist. His God is not believing in a God. And he bows down to that every day, regardless of facts. 
or things he finds out. And he wants to be faithful to that idea of there's no God or all that exists is matter, the physical. Uh, but everybody has a God or gods, things that they follow. And these things or whatever is God or gods to them affect their daily lives. So that's your next blank there, daily lives and their long-term decisions. So whatever is the thing that you have as your God, that affects how you live your, how you go through your day, how you respond to people, uh, what you do and what you don't do. And it also affects your long-term decisions, what you're planning on doing, what you're going into. If you believe uh, God exists and your job is to love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to go into a predatory vocation that, that seeks others harm for your own profit. And so long-term decisions are affected by who your God is as well. And then next line there, the determiner, again, we talked about this last week, the determiner of whom your God is, uh, is whom you obey above all. Whom you obey above all or what you obey above all. What principle do you obey above all or what God or whatever it is that's your God, that whatever it is that you're obeying, uh, that you're not violating, that you're being faithful to, um, that that is, that is your, that is your God. Uh, we see verse 53 um, here. If you look there, you see that obviously um, uh, uh, that uh, Ahaziah, a king of the north, the northern ten tribes, um, just a real uh, easy way for us to see, his God is not the God of Israel. It should be, as we look down to verse 50, 53 there, um, he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, and he was part of Israel, so the God of Israel should have been his God. But instead, he served and worshipped Baal. Uh, in contrast to that, we have a much better king than Ahaziah. Um, Ahaziah earned for his uh, ten tribes up there, you see there at the end, the, the anger of God. But Jesus, in contrast, our king, we know he's the king. He comes out and says the good news is the kingdom of God is at hand because guess what? I'm the king, the son of David. Um, Pilate asks him, are you the king? And he says, I am. Um, the good news of, of Jesus is that uh, he has the right God. That is his father. He worships and serves as he lives his life on the earth. And we see this in Matthew 4 in the parallel passages when Jesus goes out in the desert and he's tempted by Satan in the, in the desert, in the wilderness. Uh, he is faithful to his father. Um, he's even faithful, Luke twenty two forty two. 42, when he's at the end of his earthly life and he's faced with faithfulness to my father means going to the cross to die for the people he has given to me. And he says to the father, father, if you're willing, take this cup, the cup of God's wrath that Ahaziah was earning for himself through his disobedience, through his worshiping other gods. Jesus was taking our disobedience that earned wrath upon himself the cup of God's wrath, as the Old Testament prophets talk about God's wrath, it's like a cup that God's pouring into our mouths. Um, that uh, He says, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And so we see with Jesus, as Philippians 2, Paul points out in Philippians 2, even when obedience for Jesus 
means dying. Jesus does it. Uh, faithful, lived as a humble servant, and faithful and obeyed his father even to the point of death, even death on a cross, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, 8. So number two, uh, recognize this and always have in your mind always that your God is Jesus. Your God is Jesus. John establishes this well in his gospel. Chapter one there, you got some verses there. It doesn't say there. It, John makes very clear Jesus was not just a man who was a religious leader. Instead, John makes very clear Jesus created all things and that there's nothing among everything that's been created that Jesus himself didn't create. And just recognize that, just small little point of theology. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is the creator. Okay, that's what John says very clearly. Paul says it as well in Colossians 1, one uh, seventeen. the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, but that's a role, the role of Jesus. He's creator. Um, and Jesus highlights this as well when he's talking about himself and the Father in John 5 and, and says, the Father has life in himself. And the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself. And the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Jesus is the life giver. He's the creator. He creates wine where there was just water. Um, so we have in our minds as Christians always that Jesus is our God. And remember, we said, your God is whomever you obey above all else. And so Jesus says to us in John 14, 21, he, yeah, I'll tell you who loves me, he who obeys my commands. He who, that's who loves me. John 14, 21 and 23. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him, Jesus says. So we recognize this always as we go through life that Jesus is our God and that means that we obey him above all things. So number three, now this gets to this week. That was review. Um, number three, be faithful to Jesus through being faithful to his commands. This is something vastly uh, misunderstood among American evangelicals, not by the church throughout its history, but by American evangelicals. Uh, be faithful to Jesus through being faithful to his commands. Remember, John 14, 21, Jesus says, don't sing, don't sing you love me over and over and over again. Do what I say. That's how you show who loves. I'll, I'll tell you who loves me. He obeys my commands. Um, so verse 43, uh, verse 46, verses 52 to 53, uh, they get at this. Who is a person's God? It's whom they obey above all. Um, and since Jesus is your God, it's his voice and his command you are heeding above all. Not other things, not other people. Uh, don't treat Jesus like he's not your God. And this is where both Jehoshaphat and Ahaziah get it wrong. Um, they fail. For them, uh, though in the covenant of grace, okay, recognize the covenant of grace begins with Adam and the, the slaughtering of the, the animal that covered them. So covenant of works was something only in the garden, if you know those terms. But they, they are in the covenant of grace, and they are, are kings under God's, uh, or over God's people, um, sons of Jacob, uh, sons of 
sons of Israel. And though they're in the covenant of grace, though they have the temple sacrificial system available to them, which is part of the covenant of grace, your sins can be forgiven through the wrath against your sins going against an animal instead of against you. That's covenant of grace stuff. Don't think of temple sacrifices as covenant of works. It's not covenant of works was over when Adam sinned. Okay, and God established a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And with this covenant of grace, he established with his people that they didn't have to pay for their own sins. They could have their sins paid for upon an animal. And so a worshiper in Old Testament Israel brought a sacrifice, a, a lamb or a goat, or if they were an important person, a bull, um, or a poor person, a pigeon. And they placed their hands on this animal in a symbolic transferring of their sin onto that animal, and then they killed this animal. And, and the priest then took care of the blood. And, and uh, that was, and God says, uh, I think it's four times in Leviticus, and your sins will be forgiven as you give this sacrifice. Okay? Uh, and so this was covenant of grace stuff. And so even Ahaziah in the north, he could have still been king, but told his people, but you need to go down to Jerusalem to sacrifice at the temple there and to have your sins forgiven. Um, so he's got that uh, uh, temple sacrificial system available to him, as does Jehoshaphat, who lives next to the temple in Jerusalem. Um, though they were the nation of the descendants of Jacob, Israel, and therefore the nation of God's favor, um, when no other nation on earth had God's favor, they had it. They were the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the uh, inheritors of the promises given to Abraham then to Isaac and then to Jacob and his sons. Okay, And they were of the sons of, of Jacob. These two kings did not pay careful attention to the Lord's commands. Now, with Ahaziah in the north, it was huge. He was worshiping another god. So that's really blowing it. Not paying attention to the Lord's commands. First command, you shall have no other gods before me. Right? Second command, you shall not worship me through idols. And so he's got an idol there, Asherah poles and such up there. So he's blowing it in a major way. Um, but Jehoshaphat, in, in a little um, uh, lesser way, he's allowing sacrifices to be made at high places in Judah. And God specifically, as we looked at last week and the week before, God had specifically said, sacrifices unto me happen only on the altar that I've created. And that altar was in Jerusalem in the temple, the big bronze altar that was in front of the temple at the temple complex there. And so Jehoshaphat doesn't play, pay careful attention to the Lord's commands about where the people were to offer worship or sacrifice um, to the Lord. And uh, on top of this, we saw this uh, thing in, in uh, Second Chronicles that, that uh, Jehoshaphat kept not learning the lesson that he not, ought not to ally himself with the wicked northern kingdom. Uh, we'd seen that a couple of weeks ago when, they go to, when Jehoshaphat goes with Ahab to Ramoth Gilead, um, contrary uh, to Micaiah's prophecy that you're going to fail. When you go there, Jehoshaphat goes anyway. And then we see that he builds now in this passage, verse 48, that he builds trading ships with Ahaziah. And the Lord says, okay, 
Joshua, you're being a little dense here. Let me make it really obvious to you. Before these ships sail, I'm going to crush them. And he does. And then we see in this passage here as well that in verse 49, uh, Ahaziah comes to Jehoshaphat again a second time and says, let's build some more ships and our, our my sailors and your sailors will sail together. And finally, Jehoshaphat gets it and says, well, what's it say there? Uh, he, Jehoshaphat refused, finally. Uh, but Jehoshaphat has these things. He allows the high places. He allies himself with the wicked we saw that in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. That's not something that you do. You lie yourselves with the, with the wicked. And so the people suffer. Eventually, and the people reading this book, 1 Kings, they were in exile because they had kings that were not paying careful attention to the law of the Lord. And this brought the people into idolatry and actually worshiping other gods, even in the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And so this is a point for God's people as they're reading 1 Kings. This is God's point as he's inspiring this text here is be careful, as Moses said, be careful to obey all my commands and I'll bless you in the land. So uh, A here, your outline there, background and important biblical uh, uh, point here is that even good Bible believing um, uh, uh Kings like Jehoshaphat, he's rated as one of the good kings. There were only eight good kings in the divided kingdom. And so there were 38 kings altogether between north and south. There are only eight good ones, eight out of 38. And Jehoshaphat is given an A grade. Okay, so he, he gets some things wrong, but he's one of the good kings. If you want to find out how good he is, read Second Chronicles 20, right, Joyce? Um, that, that's awesome. And uh, and he does many faithful things. Um but they can get it wrong. Um, the human kings, or, you know, David, the pinnacle of, of Old Testament kings, he gets it wrong too with Bathsheba and then getting Bathsheba's husband murdered. Um, he repents well, but he hasn't always gotten it. He hasn't always gotten it right. But even today, Bible believing and Reformation coming out, you know, churches that have come out of the theology of the Reformation and a good view of the gospel um, uh, salvation through grace, uh, mostly get this wrong, and it's A there. Be aware that the good news of the son of David, Jesus, remember Jesus is the son of David, he's the king, is number one, not only the forgiveness of sins. Okay, and most, most good Bible-believing churches, well, a lot of Bible-believing churches get this wrong. They think the good news is just the forgiveness of sins. Uh, believe in Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. That is true, um, and that is wonderful. And like I said earlier, if that's all that the good news were, we would rejoice and dance and be happy because that's our fundamental need to be forgiven. Um, I, I uh, was thinking about this, and I thought of the movie uh, Taken. Um, and so I, I found the scene on YouTube it's the kidnapping scene and uh, Taken. I, I sh shouted it over to Matt because I'm sure I was sure he had seen Taken and he hadn't seen the movie before. Heresy. <laughs> um, L Liam Neeson uh, plays a guy who's been uh, basically an undercover CIA agent kind of guy um, all his career. 
And so he has, as he says, a very particular set of skills. <laughs> and his daughter, he's, he's divorced because he's been away so much and his wife is remarried and the daughter lives with the, the stepdad and the, and, and the mom. But he reluctantly agrees, Liam Neeson does, to allow his 18, 19-year-old daughter to travel to France, to Paris, with a friend. And he's scared to death because he knows how dangerous the world is. Because he's been fighting these guys undercover all his life. And so there's a scene where his daughter has gotten, she's just arrived in Paris, and she's, uh, uh, I, if you haven't seen this movie, it's good, and so see it, so I'll try not to give too much away. But she's in the big apartment, this huge, just luxurious apartment complex that this friend's cousins, that it's their family's apartment, but the cousins aren't there. And so they're there all by themselves, these two daughters. And, and, and Liam calls his daughter. He's given her a particular cell phone and it's ringing. She says, hi, daddy. And he says, I told you to call me as soon as you landed. And she hadn't called. And, and so as she's talking, she looks across and she's in this apartment that's basically a, like a donut. There's a courtyard in the middle. And she looks across the courtyard from her windows into the other windows to the other side of the apartment, the other donut part. And she sees that these men have arrived into the apartment and that they've abducted her friend. They've taken her and there's a struggle and she's talking to her dad. She says, there are people here. And he says, who, the cousins? And she says, no, there are these men and they've taken Amanda. And so he says, okay, I need you to listen to me. And he goes and he gets his tape recorder and all this stuff. And he says, he says, uh, uh, Kimmy, they're going to take you. Now I need you to listen very carefully because what I'm going to tell you is very important. And he says, are you ready? I need you to focus, Kimmy. And she says, okay, I'm ready. Your voice is shaking. He says, where are you? And she says, well, I'm in the bathroom. And, and he, he says, get out of the bathroom, go to the next bedroom, get under the bed. And he says, no, I need you, this next part is the most important. I need you to keep the phone on. And when they take you, I need you to leave the phone on the ground and shout out everything you see about your abductors. Tattoo, hair color, is their hair short? Are they short? Are they tall? What boots are they wearing? All this kind of thing. I want you to shout as loud as you can. And that's what Liam Neeson then uses to find these guys and to find his daughter. But suppose he had said to her, they're going to take you. And she said, okay, great, see you later, and hung up. <laughs> he would have no chance of finding her. And in a way, that's what the Christian community and the church, at least in our country, has done with the gospel. We say, oh, my sins are forgiven, great. Hang up. And we don't hear the rest. And we don't get the rest of the benefit. And there's so much more than that. Um, so it's not only the forgiveness of sins. That's a sixth of the good news. That's I didn't count, but just get that. It's the sixth of the good news. Um, evangelicals hear your sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus. And they say, OK, and they hang up the phone. Um, this is why American evangelicals are so shallow and why we get lambasted in the public. Uh, because all we know is that our sins are forgiven and we go around living like idiots and uh, not treating people well, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we don't have a good reputation. You know, think of Billy Graham and what a great reputation he had. 
among all kinds of unbelievers because of his life and his sincerity and who he was. But the church today doesn't have that kind of reputation and that kind of respect uh, from the world. And it's because we've stopped at just forgiveness of sins. So number two, it is also the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus, among other good things, getting an example, getting an example of and leadership in obeying the moral law of God. Uh, we can read in Deuteronomy uh, 17 um, that our king um, uh, was uh, Deuteronomy 17. Moses is told when you get into the promised land, you're to choose a king for yourselves as to be one of your own brothers. And one of the things the king was to do, Deuteronomy 17, 18, when the king takes the throne of his kingdom. And as I said in Sunday school, if you heard that a king in Israel was a sinful thing, you've been mistaught. Um, Deuteronomy 17, God prescribes that the people were to have a king. So you think if the king is sinful and then Jesus is a king. See, that doesn't make any sense. But God orders that there would be a king over his people. And we've got a whole book in the Bible, Judges, that tells us what God's people are like when they have no king in Israel. They do what's right in their own eyes. And they're uh, cutting up concubines and sending them around the, the country. And the one who delivers them is committing adultery with multiple women, Samson. Okay, that's what people do when they don't have a king. And that's the point of the book of Judges. But the king, Deuteronomy 17, 18, when the king takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. The king was to have Genesis through Deuteronomy. He is to have a scroll, a copy of this law, taken from that of the priests who are who are Levites, is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully, follow carefully, all the words of this law and these decrees. See, this is why David can say in the Psalms, oh, how I love your law. He had his own copy and he read it all the days of his life so that he might lead the people in following it give them an example, and, and so that he might instruct them in following it as well. Um, Deuteronomy 28, God says, as you follow my law, I'll bless you. That's my desire. Leviticus 26, that's my desire to bless you in the land, to give you abundant crops, to be gracious to you. And it's not a perfect obedience, and that's why the sacrificial system is there. It covers their imperfections and sin. So give your sacrifices like I've commanded you to give them and have me be your God and have your life aim and the aim of your behavior to be walking in my ways. And when you don't, those sacrifices will cover those ways. But you're to have your heart and your mind to love me. All of your heart, soul, mind and strength to love me and to be carefully uh, obeying all the words of this law and these decrees and so David referred to his role as king in Psalm 51, 13, saying, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. That was part of the role of the king, to make sure God's people to be the under king. God was king over all Israel, but he placed this one king, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, or 1 Chronicles 17, he placed a human king to be among them. This is what elders do in a church. A human king among them to give an example, 
right? Peter says elders in 1 Peter 5 are to be examples to the flock, to be an example in living for the flock, but also to instruct them. So 1 Timothy 5 with elders today in the church. There are even elders, elders have to, 1 Timothy 3, be apt to teach, able to teach God's word. But there are also elders, 1 Timothy 5, 17, who are uh, expressly devoted to preaching and teaching. We call those teaching elders or pastors in the church. And that was, the, they're taking over this role of the Old Testament king where he was instructing God's people in how to obey. So the king was in charge of, of the temple upkeep and for people calling people to the festivals and, and, and for instructing people to keep these festivals and to have no other God but him, to have no other place of sacrifice but the temple to be doing things in all God's ways. And if the priests and the Levites weren't doing things in the ways God had declared them to be done in Exodus through Deuteronomy, the king, it was his job, the son of David, to get them straight. And so you see people like uh, uh, Josiah, you know, having to open the doors of the temple that had been locked and, and get the dust cleaned off the things of the temple because the people weren't walking in the ways of the Lord. But that's Josiah doing doing his job of having right worship uh, for the people, instructing the people in this. And Jesus, we see in the Gospels, uh, gives us that example. It's one of the great benefits we have of these four Gospel books that we have. We get to see <clears throat> excuse me, how Jesus interacts with people. How does he act with wolves in the church, the Pharisees? Those who would distract people from worshiping him. How does he interact with sinners? He receives them, doesn't he, when they come to him in faith. Uh, we see he's forgiving and patient. We see he eats with Pharisees and tax collectors. You see he blesses Romans and heals their servants. We get to see Jesus. We get to have this example. How did Jesus act toward other people? And we get to hear him teach and say things like we saw in, in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. I came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. The law is not our enemy. The law is our guide to live as we were framed to live. You know, for a car, the law is saying put, put gasoline in there because it's a gasoline engine. The world will tell you to, to, to put uh, grape jelly in there. But don't do that. Even if the whole world says put grape jelly in your, in your gas tank, put gasoline in it. And that's what the law is for us, the moral law of God, as we call it. It's instructions in, in, in living. And so that's your A there. Um, the moral law of God is God's unwasted breath. The moral law of God is God's unwasted breath about how we should live. So many commands in Scripture, and God is not wasting his breath. There's a picture of Christianity that's presented in the church, big capital C today, that says the Old Testament was, well, that's a waste of your time. Because that's all law and God doesn't like law and all that kind of stuff. But what we fail to recognize is the law reveals the character of God. 
It's not arbitrary. It's not a thing that says jump up and down three times on your left foot and then do this around your ear. Have you ever had to like reprogram your, your key transponder? Have you ever done that? It's like you got this. It's like, you know, you, you read on the Internet how to how to program your key so it can unlock your doors. And it's like open your door, close your door, turn the key, open your door again, turn the key back, close the door, turn the key forward, open the door, close it, open the door, close it, turn your key back. Now push the button on your transponder. <laughs> and that's how you reprogram your key. And it's different for every car. Um, but, but that's how the law is treated. Like it's just arbitrary. Like it's a bunch of nonsense, but God commands that we be patient because he's, he's patient. He commands that, that we be compassionate. He commands it because he's compassionate. And so when we exercise compassion or, or patience, we're being godly like God or Christ like. And so the law matters because it's it's our roadmap of how we can be like Jesus, how we can have his character. And this is why God takes us so so uh, seriously and why he tells you know, us to pay attention to the law. The Old Testament sacrificial system. Why is that important? Because it shows us what Jesus did. God treats his people who come to him in faith, who say, I am a sinner and my sins deserve death. Here, kill this animal instead. It's just in New Testament days, we say, and I accept the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus, for me instead. Okay, so all the law, even the ceremonial law, the stuff about temple sacrifices, that all speaks of God's character, that he's compassionate, that he's forgiving, that he's gracious. And so, so we care about it and we walk in it. So God's not wasting his breath. Think about Second. Timothy 3.16, if you know any passage about God's word, maybe that's the, maybe that's the, the verse, but it, it says that God's word is profitable for rebuke and correction. Realize that means commands. To rebuke, you have to have a command. It's implanted in there. Right? You can't rebuke somebody. and Rebuking is saying, you didn't do this and it was wrong. You didn't do what? The what is the command. And so even in the New Testament, the fact that God's word is God breathed and that God breathed it out is him saying, you know, that I've got these I've got these commands and I can correct you and I can rebuke you and I can teach you. What's he teaching us about himself and about how we should live training and righteous living? He's giving us. So B, B, the moral law is good news to the believer. Um, as we saw in the um, our call to worship, uh, if you want to look there on the front of your uh, worship guide there, as Moses says, you know, what does the Lord ask of us? To fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your, and following his commands and decrees, which are given to you for your own good. God is so good. We say it a lot in our church here. God is so good. He not only forgives your sins, he teaches you how to live so that you don't destroy your own life. And so you don't destroy the lives of the people around you. 
He's so good. He tells you how to live so that if people criticize you, they don't have facts to back it up unless their facts are, well, you love everybody. And we say, okay, I'll take that criticism. God loves us and he tells us how to live. This is the father with his three-year-old on the edge of a busy street, holding his three-year-old's hand and saying, never cross the street unless I'm holding your hand. It's the, the father or the mother with their child at seven years old saying, every time you cross the street, you need to look both ways, even if you're on a crosswalk. These are commands out of love to protect you. Not because your father or mother doesn't love you, but because they do, they give you commands on how to live. And so this is good news. One of the good but the things of the good news is not only does our king die for us so that we have the temple working for us, that's Jesus, our sins are forgiven, but we have a king who gives us an example and who leads us in following the Lord that is in, in, in living according to the way we were framed to live with gas in our tank instead of grape jelly. So that's good news. So B, the moral law of God is good news to the believer, Old or New Testament. This doesn't change. Next blank for you. David and all the prophets agreed with Moses that this was so. And so we saw our, our uh, uh, preparing for hearing the word of God. Um, David said, oh, how I love your law. He didn't say, Oh, how oppressive your law is. I can't wait until my son comes along someday and I never have to obey this again and I can live like my son Solomon's going to live in the future. Boy, that was sure good for him. Because it wasn't. He says, oh, how I love your law. I meditated on it all day long. You see, if you say the law is bad, you've got to deal with David. You've got to deal with Moses. And you've got to deal with the prophets. Because they speak of the law in glowing terms. Okay? Because the law directs us and guides us so that our lives are, are, are good. Um, so a uh, little historical background, little historical background for you. Um, number one, Luther and Calvin parted on this. Luther and Calvin parted on this, whether the law, the moral law was good or not for the Christian. Number two, Luther drew a hard law-grace distinction. And so between uh, Lutherans and Calvinists today, essentially between Lutherans and Presbyterians today, you hear this discussion. Sometimes among Presbyterians, they even talk about this law-grace distinction. Okay, if you know Michael Horton, I love Michael Horton, he's with the white horse in, but he's essentially Lutheran in his view on the law. Um, as his, his uh, buddy wrote Rod Rosenblatt, who's on that show with him, who I had for class once, who's really funny, a funny guy, but Rod's a, a Lutheran. And it's this heavy law-grace distinction where you say, commands are bad, and their only function is to lead us to the grace of Christ. That's a heavy law-grace distinction. Old Testament was law, and that's bad. New Testament is grace, and that's good. In Presbyterianism, it's gotten to us with something called sonship. Some of you have heard of sonship, and there's good sonship and bad sonship, but bad sonship has a heavy law-grace distinction. And you, you talk to people who are in that or people who are believing Lutherans, and whenever you talk about doing something that we're instructed to do in the Scriptures, they get really nervous 
because they haven't distinguished between justification and sanctification. They think it's all one thing. Now, if you said that to them, they'd say, no, I don't. But they do. Um, I'll explain that just as we're going through here. But Calvin noted, and this is what sort, sorts, this out, sorts this out for us, that with the moral law, and that's the, the law of God that tells us how to live as people, the moral law. In the Old Testament, you have some law that says if someone steals someone's ox, here's how you deal with it. That's judicial law, different law, um, that expired with the nation of Israel, except for the principles contained therein. And then you've got ceremonial law, which is like sacrifices and festivals and that kind of thing. Christ fulfilled all that stuff. Uh, but then you have moral law, and those are instructions to us, and they're summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. Notice all those commandments are us personally. Um, I have no other gods. Uh, I don't worship an idol or God through an idol. Um, I don't take the Lord's name in vain. This is all personal stuff, personal moral behavior, the moral law. I, I remember the Sabbath day and I keep it holy. I honor my mother and father. I don't kill somebody and, uh, physically or, or with my speech. I don't commit adultery or, or look at a woman lustfully in my heart. Um, I don't steal things. I don't bear false witness toward other people and I don't covet other people's stuff because God is sovereign and he's given people their stuff and I need to be content with where I am. These are all personal things and this is what is called the, the moral the moral law. But Calvin noted there were three uses of the moral law, your number three there. A, the first use, to alert individuals of the impossibility, the impossibility of winning God's favor by law obedience. Okay, so one of the uses of the moral law when it says to us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we say, okay. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's where I was in middle school, in junior high. Uh, I got it impressed upon me to read my living Bible that was next to, in my bed stand. And I started with the Gospel of Matthew. And I, I went into the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, not hate anyone in my heart, not call them stupid. Ed. This is what I do all through every soccer game. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not lust after a woman in my heart as a middle school kid. And, and, and I realized I, I, will not, I haven't fulfilled this, so it's too late. But I can't conceive of me ever fulfilling this. And that's the first use of the law. The law drives us, it, 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 it drives us to see that we cannot please God by our works. Okay, so that's Ephesians 2. Eight and nine, salvation's not by works. And that's a use of the moral law. That we love it. We look at all the commandments and we and we don't say like, like the rich young ruler, well, I've obeyed all of these since I was a young boy. And Jesus says, Oh yeah? Well, let's 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 uh, talk about coveting. Um, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And we'll see if you've obeyed that one. Um, and he walks away sad because he has another God things stuff um but but the first use of the law it drives us to christ it drives us to the gospel it makes us aware of the impossibility that god will be pleased with us because of our lives second use of the uh the more and so that's what paul says there galatians 3 10 all who rely on observing the law are under a curse for it is written cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. 
And then Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So we're not justified by the law. Okay, and that's what people get confused of. They say, well, I'm not under any commands because they start thinking justification. We say, no, we're not talking about your justification. We're talking about how you live now that you're justified. We're not, we're not talking about how you get out of Egypt. We're talking about how you live in the promised land. Right? We're not talking about how it is you were born, your mother and father gave you birth. We're talking about how you behave as a member of this family. And you may disobey our commands that we give you, your mom and dad, but your DNA says you will never not be our son. Get that? Justification is spiritual birth and being a son of God. A child of God, John 1.12. The law of God, the moral law of God, is how you behave in our family. And you won't do this perfectly, but this is how you behave because, as my dad said, you're a musgrave. I know everybody does things other ways, but that's not how we do it. And I know you can do this, and all your friends are doing this, and that's cute, and all your friends will pat you on the back for this, but that's not who we are. And that's what God says to us. He says, you've been born, as James says in James 1.18, of the seed of the gospel. And this bears fruit in your life. And so your life will look different. Okay. Um, so the first use of the law is not to justify us. The first use of the law is to see that we can never be justified by the law. Because its demands are too great for us. Second use of the law was to temper the behavior of non-believers, or as Calvin put, the nations. Um, uh, R- Romans 2, 14, 15 says, every human being has the law of God written in, their, in his heart. And this is what keeps people from being as bad as they could possibly be. This is, what, this is why a non-believer just doesn't kill you when he gets mad at you, because he knows it's wrong in his heart. That's part of your... your uh, um, uh, constituents or your, your uh, constitution as a human being is you know you need to love God and love people. And so that's why non-believers, atheists say, you can't do that, that's wrong. Okay, because the law of God's written on their heart. And so one of the, the second use of the law, the moral law, is to keep the nations from being as bad, as the unbelievers from being as bad as they possibly could be because their conscience bothers them when they treat somebody poorly. Okay. Third use of the law is to guide the Christian. And this is what we're talking about here. To guide, to guide the Christian uh, in life. James, this is why James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in James 1, 22 through 25, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. If you just listen to it and don't do it, you're deceiving yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. Okay, when you when you read the commands of God, you have the character of God. The commands contain what God is like. And since you have the seed of the gospel implanted in you, this is verse 18 right above this passage in James 1. Since you have the seed of the gospel implanted in you, that's going to grow. So if that seed is an apple seed, it's going to, going to grow an apple tree and you're going to have apple fruits on your branches. Okay. If the seed of the gospel is implanted in you, then when you look at the law, you see what your future is. 
The law says, be holy for I am holy. The law says, God is gracious and compassionate, not quick to anger, slow to anger. That's what the law says to us. And it gives us our trajectory of who we are as human beings. That's who I'm growing into. That's the DNA of the gospel that's going to cause my ears to be this tall when I'm 78 years old. Okay, or whatever it is, right? And so when we look at the law, that tells us who we're going to be. Okay, and so we get a picture of what we're going to look like in the future. But James says, if you look at the law and see what you're going to be and, and, and what, you, what you've become through God's character and then turn around and say, well, I've got blonde curly hair and lots of freckles. He says, that's ridiculous. You just looked in the mirror and you saw you had brown, dark brown hair. My wife says it's black. You have dark brown hair and you don't have freckles. And you're 5'9", you're not 6'3". So listen to James now. Anyone who listens to the word gets a picture of what God is like and what he is to be like and does not do it, it says, is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. He forgets his trajectory, what he's growing into. He forgets he's an apple tree and starts acting like he's broccoli or something like that. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, this is how James describes the moral law of God, the perfect law that gives freedom. You know, Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave of sin. John says in 1 John, all sin is lawlessness. So if you're lawless, you're sinning. And Jesus says, if you're sinning, you're a slave. James says, if you obey the law, you're free. We're all going to do something. What are we obeying? If we obey the law, we're free. We're living as we were intended to live. If we don't obey the law, then we're slaves to sin, as Jesus said in John 8. So, uh, but the man who looks intently, this is James 1.25, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So guess what? You're blessed if David is your king because you see what he's doing and you follow it and the whole nation's blessed and no foreign, army come, foreign armies come in and burn down your house because you're walking in the ways of the Lord. But if Ahaziah is your king and he's worshiping Baal and you're not walking according to the law of the Lord, then you're going to get exiled pretty soon. Okay. So part of the good news is that we have a king who shows us how we walk in the ways of the Lord. He gives us commands to, to rescue us from our silly ideas of how we should live. James 2.14. Um, what is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? You see, saving faith, if you're born again, if you've seed of the gospel in you, saving faith has deeds. The apple tree grows into a tree, and the tree then has apple fruits upon it. 
or Matthew 7, 24 through 27, as Jesus talks, he says, you know who the fool is? The fool is the person who doesn't know God's law. And he's like a person who builds his house, his life on sand. But the wise man is one who hears my words and practices them. He's the one who builds, who's like he's building his house on the rock. And no matter what happens to him in his life, no matter what chaos, no matter what unexpected hardships come upon him in his life, he can withstand it because his house is built on a rock. And what is, again, Jesus says, what is that house? Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So you want to survive the hardships that will come to you in your life. It's by practicing the things that God has told you to do in his word. Not because he wants to take away your fun, but he wants to make you free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Not running away from the truth saying, oh, that's bad. I'm under grace. <laughs> it's a misunderstanding. But rather seeing the truth and diving into the truth and seeing, how can I be more like you, God? And looking in his law and saying, this makes so much sense. And I'm really free in this. Because I didn't take revenge on this person. Because the law said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So I didn't take vengeance on this person. And so now I don't get accused of doing wrongdoing. Because I didn't take vengeance on this person. Okay. Um, so see, see, walking in God's ways, according to his commands as a Christian, brings blessing, brings blessing, um, doesn't bring salvation. So don't be, oh no, the law, legalism. Um, that's a complete misread on the moral law of God. Um, and it forces you to, to ignore a boatload of scripture and not just the Old Testament. Jesus is full of commands. And the apostles are full of commands. Love one another as I have loved you. That's a command Jesus gives you. And you don't want to throw that out. So obeying the law of God is a wonderful thing. We are created by God to do so. It fits our frame. So B, B. This obedience is not a generalized, vague, V-A-G-U-E, V-A-G-U-E, vague obedience to what a good Christian does. This is where American Christianity is. This is where I used to live. Well, what, what does it mean to be a good Christian? It means basically to have good vibes about Jesus. And, and, and it's, it's being able to answer with a, a, a kind of a saccharine uh, view. That's, that's a term that you young people don't get because you you've got other sweeteners now. But uh, it, it's, it's a uh, happy, happy all the time kind of, kind of uh, view of things of, oh, it means I, I just love Jesus so much. Isn't Jesus great? When someone, you know, your husband dies and... And you say, you know, well, how's it going? Well, great. You know, I know Jesus is wonderful. You know, we had a friend like like this and actually she's dead now and her husband's alive. But every time we'd see her, you know, things wouldn't be going all that well. But I know Jesus is right. And there was truth to that. But she just thought that's Christians had to be inside, outside, upside, downside, happy all the time. And she didn't see all of Scripture where David said, this stinks, Lord. Have you abandoned me? 
will you abandon me forever? Um, or where Job says, hey, as far as I can see, I've been kinder to the poor people, to the needy, uh, to everyone around me more than everybody else on the face of the earth. And I've got the worst hand. <laughs> um, but uh, there's this vagueness of what, uh, what a good Christian does. Um, it, it's, oh, I need to wear my, a few years back, my WWJD bracelet. Or I need to care about the Asbury Revival, whatever that is. I refuse to read articles about that. Guess what? Jesus is in youth by his spirit right now. Rejoice. Okay. You don't have to chase around all these old Christian flare-ups all, 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 all over the place. Um, it doesn't mean you need to listen to Christian radio or, or read these certain Christian books or that kind of thing, depending on what your environment you're in. It doesn't mean uh, being you know, clean, and, clean and nice or, or not using swear words. Um, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Um, but uh, uh, that, that, that's generally what a Christian sees is, oh, this is what it means to, to obey the Lord, to just do these things. Um, but see, it means being faithful in a specific obedience to God's commands written for you in the Bible for your own good. For your own good, as Moses said. Um, we see this all over. You see all these uh, passages and these verses listed for you. Um, Jehoshaphat gets it right with removing the male shrine prostitutes. Um, this is breaking many commands in Scripture. Uh, uh, we don't have to really say that. Uh, but he is unfaithful to remove all the high places, allowing people to offer um, sacrifices there in contrast to Deuteronomy 12 and Leviticus 17. Um, Solomon described this as uh, keeping the commands of God as the whole duty of man. Um, Ecclesiastes 12, uh, verse 13. Solomon, at the end of his life, says, now all has been heard. And it's just been a book saying, well, you could live your life this way, or 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 I did this for a while, and I did that for a while, and I did this other for a while. And at the very end of the book, the last two verses, he says, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. And the matter is, how do you live your life? And here's his conclusion. Obey God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. You may not pay for it to the good or to the bad in this life, which his book talks about, but ultimately you will. And you were created to obey him. So here's the end of the matter. Here's the conclusion. You were created as a human being to walk in faithfulness to your God. So just do that. And sometimes that'll mean you get the short end of the stick. The righteous man will get the, what the wicked man deserves, which is Ecclesiastes 8.14. And sometimes the wicked man will get what the righteous man deserves. But you were created to obey God. And so obey him, regardless of what that, what that brings. So D, D. And to hit this clearly, um, this is not just an Old Testament thing. Um, as American evangelicalism wrongly states, rather the New Testament, the New Testament and Jesus himself clearly say that the measure of faithfulness is the commands 
of God. So Jesus says, Matthew 5, 19, if anyone breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Can't get more clear than that. Um, again, this is not salvation. This is how to live as a family member. This is how to live as a child of God. First um, John 2, 3, we know that we have come to know him if we sing ooey gooey repetitive worship songs. No, that's not what John says. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. That's what the apostle that Jesus loved said. Here's how we know we love him. We obey his commands. Yeah, I told you a few weeks ago about my dad asking me to mow the yard and I didn't do it all day and he had to come home and mow the yard himself. You know, that was a lack of love on my part. You know, my dad said, John, get the yard mowed today. Should have done it first thing because I love my dad. But I didn't. I just used my dad for food and shelter. For ease. So I didn't do it. Okay. Um, so Jesus, again, John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. You know, E, E here, this is a relief. It's a relief that how you love God is defined for you in the commands. You're not left guessing. When I went to seminary, I was leaving evangelicalism where it was like, be a good Christian and here are the things and here's the attitude you have and here's the way you talk if you're a Christian. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> um, you know, and that was that meant I was a good Christian. Um, and I, I went to seminary and, and I learned, you know, God defines how we're a good Christian and it's in his commands. That takes the guesswork out of it. If I do this to Bill, is it loving him as I love myself or is it being selfish? That, it just makes it simple. Instead of always wondering if I'm walking in the ways of God. And so it's a relief. It makes faithfulness not a guess, not a subjective feeling. That's your E. Not a subjective feeling, which always gives you a sense of uncertainty on the matter. But it's a clear, objective standard. So 1 John 3, 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Um, so I was relieved. Um, you know, it's sin is not defined in Scripture as, you know, wear your WWJD bracelet or listen only to Christian radio or or read the shack or go go up to the Asbury Revival or, or know all, you know, the Christian music scene and what's going on uh, there. Um, now, F, F, reminder, moral law obedience is the standard for faithfulness as a Christian. So that's the standard. And, and God even summarizes it for us, which makes it even easier. Is this loving me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And is this loving your neighbors yourself? Jesus said, all the law and the prophets is summarized in these two commands. That makes it easy. Am I treating this person the way I would want to be treated? Easy. 
When I say, oh, man, I got some scripture reading to do today still. That's not loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind. And so I'm rebuked in that. And I rightly can call that, you know, that's sin. I say, God, you know, I've treated other things as more important than you today. And so I get to that scripture reading and I have joy in that. Um, so moral law obedience is the standard for faithfulness as a Christian, but it is not how any person gains eternal life. A great gift uh, to Betsy and I in our, our church in Bloomington, Indiana, before we uh, went down to Orlando for seminary is our, our pastor sorting out for us justification, how you're saved, with sanctification, how you live as a saved person. And he pointed out that the, the American evangelical puts these together and gets all confused and then doesn't obey the law and lives lives that hurt themselves and those around them and make us look foolish in front of non-believers because we get nervous around commands because we think we put commands which are in the realm of how you live the Christian life. American Evangelical puts commands over here and we say, nope, 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 nope. Grace, forgiveness, and faith are over here. That's how I become a child of God. But as a child of God, which I, you know, that's, I didn't decide that. John 1, 11 and 1, 12 and 1, 13, 1, 13. That's not human decision. God did that for me. But then as a Christian, I walk, I walk in his ways. And that's the background. That's what we see in 1 Kings all through, all through the book. Um, that we walk in his ways. And this is to our, this is to our blessing. We'll end there. Let's pray.